and thank you for tuning in for another episode of Maverick Messages. I'm Paige. And I'm Katie. And we are students here at Providence Baptist College. Today we will be listening to one of our chapel messages. We hope the Lord speaks to your hearts. Are you in Isaiah chapter 28? Isaiah 28. I don't know if I told you the chapter or not. But we're in Isaiah chapter 28. All right, we'll take a look at verse number 14, and we'll read down through verse number 20. Isaiah chapter 28, it says this, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it. And the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. Uh, we understand the historical context of this passage is the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. You remember King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had ascended the throne and uh, the men of Israel had come to him and uh, asked him and begged him to make their burden lighter. Solomon was a wise king, a very prosperous king, had uh, incredible riches, but uh, put the people under a great burden of taxation and uh, to maintain the kingdom the way it was. And uh, Rehoboam foolishly went with the advisors that were the young men and not the old men that were around him. And as a result of his foolishness, had split the kingdom in two. And the kingdom of Israel had chosen King Jeroboam, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, chose Rehoboam. And during Isaiah's time, there was a foreign enemy in the land of Israel and Judah. It was the foreign king of kingdom of Assyria. And they were on a quest to dominate the known world and to dominate this region under its rule. And we understand through historical context that the northern kingdom of Israel was on the brink of falling. They were about to fall. Uh, the Assyrians were uh, laying siege to Samaria, the capital city. Uh, and all of this was observed from a distance by the residents of Judah uh, and the residents of Jerusalem and also the refugees from the northern kingdom of Israel. I imagine a lot of people evacuated the cities where they lived and they traveled down to Jerusalem. And we know that's a historical fact as well. King Hezekiah had to expand the buildings uh, and the walls of Jerusalem just to be able to fit all the extra people in Jerusalem uh, during this time of the Assyrian uh, kingdom. And so Isaiah pronounces judgment on Israel earlier in the chapter. You can see in verse number one, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim is uh, synonymous with the kingdom of Israel. Uh, These two words are used interchangeably, Ephraim, Israel. And of course, uh, as he pronounces judgment on them in chapter 28, I imagine all the rulers there in Jerusalem, in Judah, said in hearty amen. Uh, These two kingdoms were at odds with each other at times, and they could look at uh, the kingdom of Israel and see their wickedness and say, yeah, you get them, God. That's what they deserve. Uh, 
But in verse number 14, Isaiah turns his attention to these scornful men of Jerusalem. You can see that uh, in verse number 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem. He direct, redirects his attention. Uh, do you recall the narrative of First and Second Kings? I'll just kind of re- rehearse it with you. But when comparing the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah, which one was the worst kingdom? It was the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, as you go down through the chronology of the kings of Israel and the chronology of the kings of Judah, um, sometimes you can get you know, bogged down in all the details there as you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But basically it's this. Um, Israel had n- hardly any good kings at all. It was bad king after bad king after bad king. Uh, it was uh, one servant of a king who stabs and assassinates the king and then um, you know, gains the throne. Three months later, he's assassinated. It's just a really, really, really uh, tumultuous kingdom where um, dynasties are being overthrown. One family takes the rule and they reign for a few generations. Then another t- family uh, eliminates that entire family. And uh, we see that the history of Israel gave the rulers of Jerusalem some, sen- some sense of self-righteousness. While uh, Israel was nothing but bad kings, Judah had a fair good amount of good kings. They had their bad kings as well, but they at least had some uh, lineage from uh, King David. They had some semblance of righteousness some, from time to time. Even some of their bad kings uh, later in life then turned and repented and became good kings at the end of their life. Uh, and we read about some of those as well. And so what they observed is they observed that Israel was receiving its deserved punishment for its innumerable sins. And I can't, uh, I can't argue with that. They are receiving what they did deserve. Um, but what the rulers of Jerusalem forgot was that they were just as guilty. And we understand that this comparison is foolishness, right? In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It's not a wise thing to do. And that's what the rulers of Jerusalem were doing. Uh, They're comparing themselves. Yeah, get them. Get them. That's what they deserve when they needed to look in the mirror and realize that they were guilty of some of the exact same things. Isaiah's declaration was simple. Judah's bed of self-righteousness was not big enough to contain their hypocrisy. We can see that in verse number 20. And we also see that their covering of piety was not wide enough to hide their sin. Why did these rulers of Jerusalem think that they would escape the same fate as Israel? We can see it in verse number 15. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. They thought that they had made a deal with the devil. They made a deal with the devil and they were exempt. Hey, if I indulge it a little bit, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to them. They really deserve it. But you don't know who I am. I'm Judah. I'm Judah. Hey, the kings of Judah are from the direct line of David. The Messiah is coming from this kingly line. We can dabble. It's all right. It's not going to hurt us. I made a deal. And they thought they would be the exception to the rule of sowing and reaping. They thought they were more righteous, although all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And of course, we do the exact same thing. Looking out from the pious, self-righteous portals of our separation. Oh, I'm separated. I don't do what that person does. Therefore, I'm exempt. I've made a deal. I'm, I'm, I'm separated. I'm righteous. Maybe it's our ministry. Hey, I'm a bus captain. I'm a bus worker. I'm enrolled in Providence Baptist College. Maybe it's our education. Maybe it's our Bible knowledge. Maybe it's our goodly heritage. Do you know who my parents are? 
You know how many generations of Christians are in my family? Hey, it's got to count for something, right? And we've made a deal with the devil. And we think we can make that deal and play with sin and not get bit. We, always, we look at paying for the price for sin and conclude that we can meddle in the same sin and yet not pay the price. These deals with the devil always end the exact same way. Now, just to make a correlation, um, there is a television show called Let's Make a Deal. Anybody ever seen Let's Make a Deal? Um, maybe you were sick from school one day and you got to watch some daytime television. Maybe the price is right or something like that. Let's Make a Deal also as well. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, if, if not, maybe you were just never sick from school or not, or not. But I remember being sick on the couch, drinking, uh, you know, sipping my chicken broth, chicken noodle soup, saltine crackers, maybe a little bit of 7-Up, you know, to ease the stomach. That's, that's good stuff right there. And then uh, let's make a deal. What would happen on let's make a deal? There were three doors, right? And uh, they would open up one of the doors And it was a mediocre prize, right? One of the doors. And so you had to make a choice. Ooh, ooh, which which door? I've chosen already one of these doors. You choose one of the three doors. One of them is revealed, one of the ones you haven't opened. And you get to decide, ooh, do do I take this cash prize over here? Or do I switch my door? What do I do? And if you're not careful, the door that you've chosen could be a... A zonk. It's this goofy prize that makes no sense at all. Uh, it's, not, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. And I think that every deal that we make with the devil ends the exact same way. With a zonk. It's a zonk. It's worthless, and we ultimately pay the price for it. The title of the sermon is, Let's Make a Deal. Number one, the first deal we make, sin won't cost me that much. Sin won't cost me that much. James 1.15 says this, when, uh, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, sometimes, unless your name is whatever, it bringeth forth death. Are there exceptions to that rule? No, there's no exception to that rule. Sin bringeth forth death. I don't care what deal you've made. I don't care what separation you have. I don't care what ministry involved in. I don't care how much Bible knowledge you have. I don't care what your last name is. If your dad's a pastor or your dad's an assistant pastor, your mom is full-time Christian work, works in a Christian school somewhere, it doesn't matter. There's seven simple facts that everyone ought to know about sin. And maybe you've heard these before, but the first one is that sin earns wages. We're all familiar with that one. The second is that sin pays wages. It's not just that we earn them. It will pay wages. You can't help it. The third is that sin insists on paying. You may be quite willing to let the account go, but sin always insists on paying. That balance is there, and it will pay out. Fourth, sin pays its wages in kind. Sins against the body bring results in the body. Sin in the mental life brings results there as well. Sin in contact with other people brings a chain of results affecting those others. It is terribly true that no man sinneth to himself. Fifth, we see that uh, sin always pays in installments. It's never in a lump sum. It pays a little bit here, pays a little bit here, pays a little bit here, pays a little bit here. For the rest of your life, sin will always pay in installments. Sixth, sin pays in full. Sin always pays in full. The only thing that can stop the full payment of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away the state of sin. But ultimately, that only keeps me from the final payment of sin, death and hell. 
But there's a whole life that I have to live on this earth where I'm continuing to pay the price for sin. We see in seventh that sin is self-executive. It pays its own bills. Sin has bound up in itself all the terrific consequences that ever come. The logical result of sin is death, death to the body, death to the mind, and death to the soul. So you might say, oh, I, I, I can make a deal. I can make a deal. We understand that. I, you might say, I have power over the outcome of sin. Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 8, verse number 8. There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Uh, it's just something. You have no power over the outcome of it. The cost of bitterness is too great. It's a sin. Don't pay it. The cost of prayerlessness is too great. Don't pay it. The cost of disobedience, we heard about that on Sunday night. Do not pay it. The cost of fornication is too great. Don't pay it. The cost of wrong music is too great. Don't pay it. You might say, well, sin won't cost me that much. And you'll find out that that's wrong. You also might say this. Sin won't, uh, sin won't cost me later. Sin won't cost me later. Turn with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number 44. Jeremiah chapter number 44 and verse number 17. It says this, But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. I'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 47, verses 8 and 9. Listen. Therefore, hear now this. Thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. We see that Isaiah was prophesying some, um, some years, some hundreds of years before Israel, uh, Jerusalem would, would finally fall to the Babylonians. But we read in Jeremiah that in Jeremiah's day, they actually did. Jerusalem did fall. And those things that Isaiah did prophesy actually came to pass. We see that sin will be pleasurable for a season. Hebrews 11.25, it talks about Moses here, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Uh, Jerusalem and uh, Judah, uh, they were practicing wickedness or practicing idolatry, and they were engaging in in these things. And while Israel, the northern kingdom, was getting its due reward, they thought, man, well, judgment's not going to fall on us. We're still enjoying the pleasures of sin but be sure your sin will find you out. Sin will be always pleasurable for a season. And often, as we engage in sin in our lives, we make the mistake, and we mistake the long-suffering of God for the complacency of God. We do something, lightning doesn't strike. Oh, I guess God doesn't care that much after all. We, we mistake it for God's long-suffering. Uh, Romans chapter 2, turn there with me. Romans chapter 2, you need to see this. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. is so applicable to all of us. Romans chapter 2, verse number 1. 
understand that Romans chapter 1, Paul just got done describing some pretty heathenistic people. People who worship and serve the creation more than the creator. And we know how the uh, chapter ends and the end result of this sin and all the wickedness that comes with it. But in chapter 2, just the moment we think that, yeah, those wicked people in chapter 1, get them, God. Take a look at what it says to us in chapter 2. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. Oops, it's as if God was reading my mind as I read chapter 1. I was judging those people. Oops. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. I do. I guess I do. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long uh, and uh, long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. In verse number four, we can see that we despise the riches and the goodness and forbearance and long suffering of God for his complacency. God gives us this space for repentance. He doesn't immediately declare judgment. He doesn't strike us down with lightning. Why? Because he wants us to get to the point where we repent where we can say, God, I'm guilty, where we can come to him. He doesn't have to come to us. He gives us that moment, that space of grace, that space of long suffering, that space of mercy, so we can repent. We mistake the long suffering of God with his complacency. You understand that this idea of sin won't cost me later is the exact trap of credit card debt. You get the immediate satisfaction of the purchase, but you get caught paying for it later in life. The bill's in the mail. It will be delivered. You don't get to choose the day of delivery. Mel Trotter, uh, maybe you guys have studied him in your biographies of great men class. I think he's probably one of the men featured in your outside reading. Uh, and so if you haven't read about him yet, make sure you read him. But uh, the famous, he was a famous rescue mission worker. Started a, uh, he was working down at Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. Started a similar ministry over in Michigan as well. I think it was Grand Rapids, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and... Um, he was the son of a bartender who drank as much as he served. Uh, Trotter followed in his father's footsteps, losing job after job because of his addiction to drinking and gambling. And each time he lost a job, he promised to reform and start doing better. But each time he failed. Um, and after the death of his baby son, he felt guilty for it. He felt responsible for it. Trotter made his way to Chicago where he intended to drown himself in Lake Michigan. And he, Legend has it that he sold the shoes of his baby son to get by one more last drink. And he was walking barefoot through the snow toward his death when he got pushed inside of the Pacific Garden Mission was saved that same day. And for the next 40 years, Trotter did everything he could to help those like himself who had fallen prey to the deceptively alluring temptations of sin. Satan's advertising is never realistic. He paints beautiful pictures of immediate pleasure, ignoring the real consequences that its participants must endure. If the beer companies ran ads filled with crashed cars, paralyzed drivers, and tiny caskets of babies killed by drunk drivers, they would not help them sell their products. So they focus on the beginning rather than the ending. No matter how beautiful the temptation appears, it is only a cloak for the reality that sin always ends in pain and heartbreak and judgment. Maybe, maybe... You haven't made another deal with the devil. I don't know. Maybe it's this. Well, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
I'll take you back to the book of Isaiah real quickly. Isaiah chapter number 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Oh, man, on that judgment day where I stand before Jesus, man, he's going to tell me, good and well done, thou good and faithful servant. You won some people to Christ. I might be involved in a little bit of sin in my life, but I'm a good soul winner. I win people to Jesus. Doesn't that make up for it? Well, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Take a look at this. Woe, that's a strong word. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope that say, let him make speed. They're talking about God here. Let God make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Hey, yeah, come on. Bring, on, bring the judgment of God. Bring it on. Bring it on. Often we make the same deal with the devil. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Are you sure? Are you sure? I don't know about you, but what I read in the scripture is that the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, is not a picnic. Uh, when I uh, read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You know what the terror of the Lord in this context is? Often we use this as a soul winning verse. We persuade men, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We warn them about hell. You know what, we sh- what this context, what the terror of the Lord is? It's the judgment seat of Christ. It's the bema seat of Christ. Not the great white throne judgment where people are cast into the lake of fire. No, it's when I, as a Christian, stand before God Almighty, stand before Jesus Christ, and he asks me, what did you do with what I gave you? That's the terror of the Lord. The bema seat of Christ is no picnic. He's like, oh man, I can't wait to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Are you sure? Have you done any introspection? Is there sin in your life? Have you made, are you making a deal with the devil in your mind? We rely, sometimes we rely on the talents that God has given us rather than developing them. You recall uh, Matthew chapter 25, the parable there where the master gives his servants some talents. And some t- servants, they invest them and they grow them and they multiply them. What did the one servant do though? He had the one talent and what did he do? He buried it. And he presented it right back to God. He relied on it. He relied on the, what was given him to get him a good, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what he was relying on. And we've all been given talents. We've all been given gifts. And I hope that one day you don't give God that back, that gift. I hope that you're not relying on that gift. Uh, some are more academically inclined than others. I get it. Uh, trust me, I've seen your transcripts. Uh, but I hope, I hope that you're not relying on the academic gift God has given you. Rather than developing it, I hope you actually work hard for the grades you get. I hope you don't coast and get an A in any class. I hope if you coast, you get the grade you deserve. But I understand some people are just smart. They can cram for a test two minutes before and they can do pretty well on it. Uh, Some are not like that. I get it. Some are gifted uh, musically. Some are gifted musically. You got some natural ability in that arena. I hope that you don't present to God one day the gift of music the exact same way he gave it to you. I hope that you, you develop it. I hope you gain some technical knowledge. I hope you gain some proficiency through practice. Uh, those of you who are, are just natural uh, public speakers, those of you uh, who just have a natural way with people, a, a way of a persona, a way of uh, just building rapport with others, I hope you just don't give that right back to God at the judgment seat. 
the way he gave it to you. I hope you develop your gifts. We all have something to confess. None of us are guiltless. Romans 14 says this, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. It's confession day. It's confession day, the judgment seat of Christ. Be nicer if I could confess it now. Be nicer if I could take the space of grace that God has given to me and repent and turn from it. We make deals with the devil all the time. God's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe there's another deal with the devil. No one will ever find out. No one will know. Ezekiel 8.12 says this, Then said he unto me, Son of man, thou hast, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth, seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Man may never know, but understand that these men in, uh, in Ezekiel were mistaken. God does know. Job 22 says this, Is not God in the height of heavens? And behold the height of the stars, and how high they are. And thou sayest, How doth God know? Can he judge through a dark cloud? God can. God is everywhere. He sees the darkest act. He sees the darkest thought. He sees the darkest uh, motivation and intent of our heart. In his book, Anecdotes Anecdotes and Illustrations, R.A. Torrey, who was the pastor of the Moody Church downtown Chicago, relates the following incident. He said this, During our Dublin campaign, a young man came to me in great distress. He had been paying attention to a young lady who was very worldly. He had been brought up under Christian influences, his mother being an earnest Christian woman. He told me that the preceding Sunday evening he had called upon the young lady in whom he was interested. Though it was Sunday evening, the girl's mother proposed that they play cards. The young lady's mother urged him to join in the game, but he refused. He said to me, when I was invited to play cards on Sunday evening, the thought came to me, what if I should, what if I should and my mother should hear of it? It would break her heart. How many a man is kept back from doing things he would otherwise do by the thought of how it would grieve his mother if she should ever hear of it. But there is one who is more keenly sensitive than the purest mother who is grieved at the slightest departure from the path of right as no other mother is even grieved. That one is the Holy Spirit. He goes with us wherever we go. He sees all that we do. He hears all that we say. Yes, he sees the most secret fancy of the heart. And if there is an act or word or thought that has a taint of impurity or selfishness of sin, he is deeply, deeply grieved. To me, this is one of the most mightiest incentives to a careful walk. Oftentimes, when some evil thought is suggested to me by the enemy, The thought comes, I cannot entertain that thought for a moment. If I do, the Holy Spirit who sees it will be deeply grieved, and I cannot bear to grieve this ever-present faithful friend. It's this consciousness that we have God with us. It's this consciousness that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. This consciousness that uh, He is sensitive, and He can be grieved at the sin of my life. No one will ever find out. I made a deal with the devil. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, someone already knows about it. Somebody already sees it. And he's giving you space for grace. He's giving you time for repentance. He's giving you time to turn around. Some say, I can make a deal because I'm from a good home. Therefore, I'm saved. Some people make that uh, deal with the devil. I'm from a good home. You go out soul winning often enough, you'll hear that from people at the door. Oh, yeah, my, my, I come from a Christian home. I'm saved. I know for sure I'm with him. My, my whole family's Christian. Great, I'm glad your family's Christian, but are you? Is Christ in your heart? 
Now, some people say, I can make a deal and simply be a good Christian rather than surrendering my life to God. I think that's the deal that many Christian young people make. That's a deal that, with the devil they make. They say, well, God wants me to do this, but you know what? Instead, I'm going to make a deal with the devil, and I'm going to be a good Christian instead. That is a deal with the devil. If God wants you to do something more than just be a good Christian, you've made a deal with the devil over here. Why don't you surrender to God? Why don't you put it all out there? Why don't you just uh, lay it all on the altar of sacrifice? I can make a deal. Be a good Christian. Here's another. I can make a deal and deny holy living and not reap it in my children. I can deny holy living and not reap it in my children. It's one of those things that uh, is a wake-up call for any person. Uh, my wife and I, you know, young married couple, have our first child. Gives you a little bit of sobriety uh, to understand that you are responsible for a young life. To know that this child watches everything that you do, and they do. They imitate you so early on in life. It's like, holy cow! I didn't know they were watching. Uh, and, and you kind of have to, okay, we need a we need a clean up of what we're doing here. Uh, where did you learn that? You know, and well, probably for me. Um, and so many times we think, man, I can involve things in my life and I'm not going to reap it in the people around me. Maybe I can make a deal and flirt with disaster without falling into it. Final illustration here. The final eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 was not a sudden event. For two months prior to the massive blast, the most deadly and destructive in American history, earthquakes and volcanic activity signaled a major event was underway. Authorities had plenty of time to sound the alarm and warn those living nearby of the looming danger. Yet despite the seriousness of the threat, some people chose to disregard the warnings. Probably the best known of those who refused to evacuate was Harry uh, Randall Truman, not the president. All right. uh, the 83-year-old man was the owner and caretaker uh, at the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake. He had survived the sinking of his troop ship by a German submarine off the coast of Ireland during World War I, and he was not about to leave just because some scientists thought there was some danger. Truman told reporters, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. On May 18, 1980, Truman and his lodge were buried beneath 150 feet of mud and debris from the volcanic eruption, and his body was never found. He made a deal. Hey, I survived one tragedy, and German, no German U-boat can kill me. Therefore, I can cheat death yet again. It's foolish to recognize danger or temptation and think that we will somehow be exempt from the consequences if we linger. If we believe Scripture's warnings concerning temptation, we will surely flee. The Bible tells us to flee fornication. doesn't mean a casual walk. It doesn't mean... Oh, I'll just, uh, I'll just skirt by it real quick. Uh, no, it means flee. It means turn your back, flat out run. When somebody's fleeing from something, you know it. You can see it by the look on their face. You can see it through their mannerisms. Uh, they're not polite about it. When somebody's fleeing something, fleeing something and you're in their way, guess what they're going to do? They're going to plum run you over. You're like, well, what are people going to think? They're going to think I'm a fanatic. They're going to think I'm a fanatic. Flee! Run! Flat out run. The only real protection we have that, uh, the, that we have is the approach taken by Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. It says this in Genesis thirty nine twelve, And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. He didn't stand around. He didn't logic it out. 
He didn't make a deal with the devil. He just flat out ran. He flat out ran. Maybe, I don't know, each of us have sin in our lives. Each of us do. Uh, not my notes, but I remember 1 John. I'll read it to you, 1 John. Uh, at the end of the chapter, it says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the next verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I love how that verse, 1 John 1, 9, is sandwiched between two other verses that say, hey, if you confess your sin, and just in case, if you didn't know you had sin, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Confess it. Forsake it. Flee. Get yourself out. Don't hang around. Don't make a deal with the devil. Guarantee the result every time. One big Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of Maverick Messages.